0: Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shaggett. I'm a writer on the craft team over at IndieWire, and I could not be more excited to bring you this week's episode with the writer and director of the film Past Lives, Celine Song. Celine is a badass. Um, I had the best time speaking to her because she has thought incredibly thoroughly and deeply about how to use the possibilities of film as a medium, how to convey a very particular and beautiful sense of place and time and time zones and the weird feelings that come up when we're suddenly thrust back or forward uh, through a memory. We talked about everything that makes the film what it is from the importance of urban soundscapes being present to the importance of subtitles. And I think that if you've seen Past Lives, then this conversation is going to make you want to see it again. Uh, And if you have not seen the movie, then you should go watch it and then come back and listen to this conversation with Celine Song. Enjoy. I would love to, to start by asking you about like kind of a a small feature of, of the movie. I'm curious if there were any constraints or anything you thought about with a film that is largely in Korean and so largely going to be subtitled for U.S. audiences and whether there was any sort of like nuance in the writing or, or thinking about the translation that was going to appear on screen that sort of affected or, or, or shifted how you thought about certain scenes? Well, I think uh, in
1: just in writing it, I wrote it almost twice because uh, I wrote the script bilingually. So I wrote it in Korean and then English. And sometimes I wrote it in English first, and then, I, and then I wrote it in Korean. And something that we realized is, at the time, I don't know how it is now, but the final draft didn't support foreign languages. So it only spoke the alphabet. So I actually couldn't uh, write it in a final draft. And I actually wrote it in a uh, writer duet. Nice. Just <laughs> feel like one of these days I'm gonna be the sponsor for it, you know, <laughs> for writer duet slash writer solo. Um, and they actually supported the Korean language, so I could actually write it bilingually on that. Um, but I think what's so funny is like part of the running into final draft not supporting the Korean language is that you certainly wonder if anybody's gonna want a script that is written in two languages. Cause it's like a, so structurally, that feels like you're saying the rejection is already there in some way. But whatever, I was just like, it's fine. First of all, I think the way that I wanted to write it in Korean and write it in English is that, like, I didn't necessarily want it to be completely aligned literally, because I didn't want either side of the language to be limited by uh, how the language works. So. I sort of really did take it as it's like, well, I want the meaning of what is being said uh, by one side, uh, one language to be uh, matched or equaled, or I wanted to find the perfect right thing. So it's not always going to be uh, completely aligned in terms of you know, what the Korean is and what the English is in terms of just like literal translation. And then I think that we really did run into the thing where I really believe the subtitle is a part of the picture it's not something that you can really just give to like a company to just be like, hey, like have fun and then figure out how to do subtitles, right? It was like, I was like, I really needed it to be a part of the part of the scenes because especially I, I wanted to choose when we're going to subtitle something and when we're going to really let the Korean language be a mystery or English be a mystery. So I think that really was the process of the whole thing of just being like, well, I want to have control over um, how language is spoken because this movie is actually about the difference in languages and it's about uh, language gap. So yeah, so it's like you know when uh, Arthur first says "Hey, nice to meet you" in Korean, and then when Hesung says "Hey, nice to meet you" in English. My thing is like when that moment happens, I'm like, well, that's where the that's where the movie lives. So in that way, you know, subtitles was the uh, was you know as important as how we're going to color the thing, for example, or like how we're going to frame it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Um, And I'm always floored by because there are certain like you can only have a certain number of characters on a line. Um, And so the ability to be able to write so succinctly and convey the meaning and and also through framing and light and visuals convey sort of the meaning behind the words um, seems like a ginormous challenge.
1: Well, I feel like we spent so much time uh, doing it in post. I feel like that was the most challenging thing because also you're every time you fe- it feels like you're inventing a process, right? Like it was very like I was like, has people done this before? And they're like, I think maybe that TV show did it before, but it was like this one time. And I'd be like, okay, so what's the process that we're going to have to make this happen, you know? But I think the goal is to achieve the thing that I'm just hoping we achieve, which is that Uh, language
0: feels as lived in in the picture as anything else does you know absolutely you've teed me up perfectly because I was going to ask you about post and coming from a theater background I'm curious what of your experience served you the most in going into post and kind of what were sort of the joys of of you know there's the old cliche that you write the movie for the third time in editing and I would love to hear that how that experience was for you Oh, I mean, I just like,
1: I don't know. I I really loved editing. And I thought the post was the place where I felt the most uh, comfortable. You know, like, I feel like I said this in another interview, but my line producer asked me, uh, fuck, Mary, kill, pre-production, production, production, -production. (laughs) post-production. And I said, I would fuck production, because it is, you know, it's like dynamic. Everything is like you know, like you have to go with the flow. There's like a lot of, it's like, it's a wonderful lover because you're just going to show up every day. You know, it's about to end. There's a kind of a really. And a fair quality to it. A fair quality to it of just being, it's like maybe just for tonight kind of a feeling mm-hmm. to it because you're like, because it usually is how it is. You're just always like, you know, you know, I hope, you know, we're going to shoot it like this because this is what the weather is tonight. You know, <laughs> so So there is a part of it where it's like everything is a little bit temporary in a really like hot way. And then, of course, uh, when it comes to Mary, I think I was saying I it, I would be post because it is something where I feel like I've done so much of as a writer because editing is something that you've done as a writer, um, and the idea that I could also edit after I've learned so much, and the learning isn't even something that is even in me, but sometimes it's in the footage, right? You just the footage itself is the thing that is sort of showing you what I ended up with, right? So. You can sort of edit with such a concrete sense of um, how to do it, and then editing I really loved, and then of course uh, what is it? The image stuff I loved as well, but image stuff was um, it felt much easier than I think it was for sound. I feel like sound design I discovered. I mean, this is my first movie, so I uh, was learning what I loved and what I needed more time for, and what I hated, like as I was going. And something that I noticed is that. I really, really love sound design, but also it drives me absolutely crazy.
0: Understandable. And it is so noticeable. This was another thing I was going to ask you about is it feels the, especially the soundscape of New York City in this movie is so present in a way that it's like used at the top of a scene in lots of movies and then it vanishes and we don't hear any more sirens or car horns ever again. Having that attention on sound and that detail work in the sound design feels Very important to this movie somehow. Well, the movie is about
1: locations, right? The movie is about different places that people live. So without question, sound can achieve so much in that way. So we really did have a a second unit of Korean crew that went out to catch sound, right? We just had a sound crew that go out uh, during post to capture sound of the city that could be as vivid and as clear as the sound of the city in New York. So... Um, we wanted the cities to just like to and we don't have to be able to the audience doesn't have to be able to tell uh, you know explicitly I think you know like it sounds like you you were able to tell explicitly but I feel like not everybody needs to be able to tell but I think subconsciously or just kind of uh, in a way that where your brain is already processing it whether you notice it or not I think we're all going to feel it feel the difference in locations and like the way that the city will sort of come in and out, you know. So for example, in the in the Skype section, you know, sound was so difficult for that because but uh it was also really important and very I found it to be very impactful with very little. Um so for example, once we see Nora and Hesong's our relationship sort of break down over the course of Skype, we start to hear the sound of the city a little bit louder and louder and louder because we're really trying to locate the play, the characters to be uh, deeper and deeper in the place that they are actually in, right? So the location. So, for example, when we're when the two of them are meeting each other for the first time and things are still magical and miraculous and they're just so happy to see each other, the sound of the city does not need to be so profound. But when they're breaking up, when when uh, when they're uh, falling apart, uh, when Nora takes off her headphones, it was really important that the sound of the city would just come rushing in, you know, loudly, because then you're like. Yeah, right. You're actually not in Korea.
0: You know? <laughs> right. There's this illusion of closeness, but it breaks down. It breaks down, yeah. And then and I think the sometimes the sound
1: that the city could really do that for them. And yeah, like you know, in Madison Square Park when they see each other for the first time. You're just like, Yep, you're in New York City. You know, a place where it hasn't kids stay.
0: Yeah. I was also so struck in the scene where they, you know, emotionally break up over Skype. The choice to sort of have both of them, but especially Nora, in almost darkness. It feels like there's a very emotional quality, not necessarily to like dynamic lighting on people's faces, but just to light. And whether it's light or dark, whether the light is blue or electric in uh, Nora and and Arthur's apartment, this is a film that feels like it's thought about light as a quality of place um, in a really deep way. And I would love to hear you talk about that. I mean, it's the part of it is the time zone of these two places.
1: So I think that that um, those two uh, rooms are built. We had it's all set up so that um, we could change the time of day on each room the whole time we were shooting it, right? So, <laughs> so it took a long time to set up, but then once we were set up, it was easy to sort of adjust the light as we go. Um, and the thing that about the breakup scene, this was something that, you know, in what uh, Shabia Kirchner, my DP and I, were talking about uh, in pre-prep prep you know, pre-prep-prep is what we would call it. And also uh, Grace Yun, our production designer. So the three of us were talking about the scene and our dream for it was always that um, Nora's conversation during this breakup was start in darkness and end in dawn. And we wanted at the same time Hesung's room to, be, to begin in like kind of a dusk light and then end in darkness. And that was sort of the idea for it. And we were like, we will never achieve this. And then of course, our amazing gaffer, uh, Andrew Hubbard showed up and uh, we were able to achieve it. We hadn't actually had it, had the lighting timed so that we can sort of like uh, simulate a sunset and a sunrise in each room at the same time of them doing this uh, piece of uh, performance over Skype. And a part of it is like we kind of wanted it to be this thing where um, the magic of time zones is that it actually allows for kind of that kind of contradiction and the impossibility. So, anyway, so we were able to do that. And I think that what happens is like when we actually end the conversation, uh, we see actually Hesong in darkness on Skype. So, even though we as audience have seen his uh, face, the face is making in the darkness on Hesing's side, what he realizes that Nora hasn't seen it. Nora doesn't see that uh, there were tears or like she, he looked devastated because it's too dark on Hesing's side. And all she can do is look through the darkness and see what that is. And in the meantime, uh, Nora's on Nora's side, the sun is rising right out the window. So I think really is something that uh, we wanted the passage of time to sort of also feel like that because that's how sometimes conversations go. Sometimes you and I are talking and then you're suddenly like, how many hours has it been, right? It's like, it's unclear, but it's like suddenly the light's different, you know? So I think that's really was the, the idea for the, the breakup.
0: Were sort of, did you have them on separate stages or was it uh, sort of the same stage separated by like a divider just in terms of like how you laid them out on the set? It was actually two different sets on the same stage. Uh, and then we actually uh, had the
1: uh, two rooms connected by a physical uh, wire for the connection. And then we put a throttle on the connection. So we were controlling the how shitty the connection was. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and when it was freezing, I could cue when the freezing of uh, Hyesung's face was going to happen. And the actors
0: didn't know when that was going to be, the timing for that. Oh. Amazing. So they just had to react. Oh, yeah, that's had to react. Yeah. Oh, That's awesome. Some of this is just I, I feel like the language of this particular film where where environment and location, how it affects who we are is so important. But tell me what you like about wide shots. <laughs> Um,
1: I think what I like about them is, uh, you know, we, it's, it's, not, it's not a kind of thing where it's like a, it's a way that I lean or something. But I think it would always be about what the scene is uh, meant to be doing. And often it would be used when I wanted it to feel like the characters were uh, small in contrast to uh, time and space that they're living through. Or like, you know, like a moment in like any time that you wanted them to feel like they're just... They're just a life in a place or like, you know, this is just this is like one of the lives in the place. I think those are the moments or like what if I wanted the time uh, to sort of like pass in a certain way, you know, where it feels like we're just like uh, uh, we're kind of a stepping away from time or something. I think those are the moments where I think that white uh, shots were uh, right for.
0: Yeah. And I love how how close, like like medium close they are in in the, the date that the two of them have as, as like 12-year-olds in Korea. And then just how small they look against the Brooklyn Bridge when they're walking in Brooklyn. It's just such a, a wonderful contrast. And I'm curious about the moments where you call back to when the two of them were together as kids in Korea. I feel like there's... a a real risk that the film toes the line very well of it being too heavy-handed or, you know, too too abstract. And I'm curious how you thought about those flashback moments and how you calibrated them.
1: Well, I think that it really uh, was something that I was wondering about the whole time. Because I think that you're right. If it is sort of overused or used in a way that is not uh, contextually perfect, then it is going to fall apart quickly. It's going to suddenly feel like I am asking the audience to um, uh, feel things that are undue, right? So I think the thing that I really wanted was that for uh, it to serve a really particular purpose, which is always for it to be a kind of a visceral way that you remember someone. So instead of it being, it's like... um, well, you know, those feelings from the past, any time that it was going to be like that, I think that was always going to be wrong. What was going to be right for it is, for example, so I use it twice, once it's at Madison Square Park and once in the ending. Um, and then in Madison Square Park, what the reason why it's uh, right there is because oh, it's that feeling of seeing somebody for the first time in person, right? And the kind of an amazing visceral thing that it is kind of otherworldly. You're always like, this is unbelievable. Um, I was uh, doing a press thing. I was doing an interview in Toronto. And then uh, the person who was interviewing me was uh, somebody who was on my debate team back at Queen's University, which is where I went to Alma Mater, which was my undergrad, right? Uh, and uh, it was so funny because I was just looking at her and I was like, I think I know her, but I don't want to assume. Maybe I just like saw her in something. And then she was like, I was in the debate team with you at Queen's University. Um, And now look at us doing this interview about past lives. And I remember just feeling even there, I could suddenly see exactly who she was when she was a kid. Right. When she was in college, which is like, I mean, at the time you feel like a grown up. But now when you think about the kid in the college, you're just
0: like that kid. I love that the film has this progression of uh, when you're an an actual child, you want to win a Nobel Prize. When you are a college kid, you want to win a Pulitzer. (laughs) When
1: you're an adult, you want to win a Tony. Yeah, of course. Well, I think that to me that's like, it's so funny because I feel like a part of it is is that it's always a joke that Hesong and Nora share, right? And Hesong is the one who is keep calling it back, right? Because it's one of the ways that you feel uh, connected to someone, you know? Like Because even with the friend that I ran into in Toronto, like she was still, she was talking about things that I remember from back when we were in college together, right? Which is like, it's just a bit of a callback. Always. And Hesong keeps asking Nora, like, like, you know, like, well, what do you want to win now? Right? It's such a sweet joke that only, like, a really old friend can make. And I think that also only a really old friend uh, that Nora would tolerate. Like, Nora would only really be, like, indulging this and, like, joking about it and having fun with it. Only because it's Hesong, right? Because he just knows her like that. Yeah, oh, so, but the thing is, like, when we go... Uh, the flashback of it of the thing is like, even that, I think that the, there is a kind of a visceral gut punch there of like seeing somebody and then remembering who they were as kids, right? So I think that the part of it is like it always had to uh, operate like that. And the hey at the end too, the final scene and then the way that we flashback there, um, that I knew that it needed to be a little bit different. And you know, I was talking to, I think it was my production designer or my DP. Um, they, It was their thought of like, well, because I, I, I wanted when we flash back at the ending to be a little bit more uh, something else. I wanted to feel something else. And um, we had a bunch of ideas. We had like wind. We had like something, some kind of a way that we were going to shoot a different lens or something like that. But then the idea that stuck was the idea of a different light. Um, because And the part of the reason why that really works is that um, no, this is the only reason it works. It's not a part of the reason. It's the whole reason, uh, which is that <laughs> it is as though like those kids have been waiting for 24 years to say its goodbye. So it had to be at the same time as the scene that, that is unfolding. So in those ways, it's like the goal of those flashbacks have to be uh, uh, in a way literal, right? It really has to be like, this is when we feel, the characters feel like they're back to being kids, right? And it has to be so specifically that. And also, of course, the other thing that I uh, wanted with anything, just because we talked about sound earlier, is the way that it is dealt with in sound. Um, Because you want the sound to also support uh, uh, the going back to childhood. But I certainly didn't want music on it. Does that make sense? Like, I was like, oh, yeah, because if there's music on it, then you're starting to beg for something, you beg for something in the audience. But actually, despite like, and it's like a very subtle uh, change that only you will be able to just sense, right? Um, if you, you know, maybe you're sensing it unconsciously, or maybe you're able to listen to it. But I think a part of it is like, you suddenly hear the sound of like childhood Korea, just like in the faintly that comes in and out. And of course, in Madison Square Park, uh, and and in uh, at, at the East Village Street, um, the sound of New York City will come in crashing, crashing everybody back in, so it would always have to be like you know the sound of the car engine or like the honking or the sound of uh, the just like the city like it had to come and crash them back into the to the moment as adults you know
0: yeah it it really just like the present of where they are prevents them from traveling fully uh back into the past, which is and it's it's really cool because it feels like. Um, you know, in in their conversation at the, the, um, Italian restaurants bar that they go to, um, where Nora is like, that girl isn't sitting here anymore, but she was real. And then at the very end, we sort of, we see her, we see the the little girl and where she's been, um, and that she is real, but she's not Nora. Um, and that's (laughs) incredibly cool and sad at the same time. Um, (laughs) um, you mentioned music and how you you never want to beg for something or sort of, um, you know, slather the movie in, in gravy and sort of make it just one thing. But I would love to hear you talk about how you did want to use score because it's, it um, feels like it is uh, really serving a purpose when it appears.
1: I think it was always that. I think that it's like, well, the sound of the city is like what we're talking about. Have always been at the heart of uh, what the soundscape needed to be, so it, that would be the default. That would be the thing that we we're trying to achieve every time. Music would only have to really come if it is uh, if it is the right moment for that. And some there are some things there that are kind of obvious, like montage. Any kind of a montage, it's it's simple to know that like you need music for that. Um, So, for example, the Statue of Liberty, you need music for that. Rain, you need music for that. So there's a, or like an immigration sequence, you need music for that. So there's a part of it where it's a little bit like that. And then, of course, there are other things that I think it's a little bit more about the way that, like, time passes sometimes, Um, where... uh, during their first Skype conversation and then the second Skype conversation. Like, the Skype conversations, I think, that uh, was one of the big musical moments that we're trying to get right because you want it to feel like you're not giving away the ending there, um, uh, but you have to progress an entire relationship online. Um, and I kept talking about the Skype sequence as a, well. you know, like in the romantic comedy, the, the what is it, the 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 changing room scene where like the changing room montage where like the main character is like trying on different outfits until they find the perfect dress, like whatever that is, like where it's purely about the um editing and music and energy, shifting energies. So and I was like joking, it was it was a joke, but it's real, uh, to my editor and my composers that like that's sort of what that sequence is. It's gonna live and die on the the, the sort of like the music and the editing of it. So I think that, that we spent a lot of time working on that. And, and then I feel like the rest of it is is more like um, the only time that I think that the uh, music was something that um, is meant to sort of open itself up to the audience and the feelings that they might have, whether it is about crying or not, Um, or, like, making you just think about something or, you know, or not think about something. Whatever it may be, like, just giving room to the audience to have a moment is the ending. And I think that's really the piece of music that I think the only... And then by then, you know, because of the rest of the movie, hopefully we have earned that. We have earned the walk home. And there, we can actually just sit there and listen to the song.
0: Did you sort of give any instructions to, to... Christopher and Daniel kind of about the kind of sound you wanted or let yourself be surprised and sort of let them cook about sort of what would they came up with for um and now I'm gonna think about the Skype as a clothing montage that's awesome um um, and the
1: ending yeah um I think that the feeling that I had uh sorry the conversations that I've had uh with them has uh been I would just have some things that I do not want but then there'll be things that um, but then the rest of it would really, really be about, like, what each cue is meant to do. So I would just talk to them about what the, the each cue is supposed to uh, do for the movie. Um, and I was really honest. Sometimes I'll be just like, well, it's just just, just transition. Just, you just know, a little transition time, you know? <laughs> or, like, I'm like, oh, it's a montage. We need a montage. So. And it's an immigration montage. So it may be something that is uh, a little bit like, you know, whatever immigration is and, like, enterprising or some kind of an... Uh, what is it uh, like? Openly forward moving or something like that.
0: Yeah, it's something that
1: has propulsion. Yeah, it's propulsion. That's perfect. So something like that. And I think you know. Hopefully, I was more articulate than this when I was talking to them. I think. It, I think I was. But I think I was like this propulsion. Yes, correct. That's the one. But yes, uh, I think. And I think it's that. what I feel like, for example, I said I was like, you know, like I am not a. I don't really feel strings for this movie, for example. So it'd be things like that. I'd be like, I don't really feel strings. I feel like there's a lot more drums than uh, you might expect from a romantic film. I was like, uh, you know, like, yes, piano, but like, I don't need like a, only like a, I don't want piano to feel uh, too quiet or too small. Like I, if it's piano, I want, it, I want to know what's accompanied with. Like, I don't want to, I want to know how it's going to be full. So I think it, to me it was more like, that I did want the music to feel like it was epic scale, even as it's most intimate. So I think it was more like I didn't want it to feel like a t- like a tiny little piano or something. I was like, I want it if it's piano, I want it to be uh, epic, too. So and of course, these guys like, you know, some of these things like they're already like part of um, my direction is also hiring them for it. So. They already are masters of this part, that particular thing, which is this kind of like uh like emotional, uh, philosophical thing that is um that can be a little bit uh dry too, like in terms of like it's not so like it's not emo, you know? <laughs> like it's like it's kind it's kind of like it is able to be uh uh it's 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 able to feel like it's not like leaning in too hard. But is going to be deep and philosophical and emotional so i think they already knew how to do that so all i had to do was like well this is what the this is what a project is and um and i'm not looking for a big string
0: score that's an incredible answer uh my next bullet point says arthur's book is called boner and it's maybe my favorite joke in the film which isn't a question (laughs) um but i would love to ask you about uh Arthur and kind of the dramatic purpose he serves in the film, um, especially how you thought about this, the scene at the bar between him and Sung.
1: Well, I think that it's like a, you know, I, the truth is like I try not to think about uh, any characters as a dramatic tool because I feel like a part of it is like they do want them to all have a, a meaningful life and like a meaningful, like very like a complete sense of uh, self. In it so, and I think that that sort of is what was driving uh, Arthur for me as well I think he would have been disappointing if he was just there as a uh, as a way to get get in the way or something right so something that I really wanted to make sure was the um for Arthur to really have a say in the movie too because I think that he is sort of there uh providing something um which is mainly the was a good marriage for. Um, Nora, and I think it's it's, it's only really believable that um, Nora chooses to stay, stay in New York with her his life, with her life if she has uh, love there and she has love with Arthur. So I think that really was at the heart of what that was. And then, of course, I think what is amazing about the scene between Hessmond and Arthur in the bar is that like, well, first of all, I was like, you know, this is the most romantic thing, right for Nora. There was in the other room, and then there are these two guys who's talking about uh, basically how much they love her, right? <laughs> and they love her th- across time and across uh, lifetimes too. Because part of what they're able to do, what Hasan and Arthur are able to do, is like Hasan is able to say like, "Hey, like in this life, like you're the you're the person for her," and for Arthur, he's like, "Yeah, and in this life, this this is the person for me," and it's okay. Like we're not going to. Um, Argue, and we're not, I'm not going to make you feel awful for this, right? So he says, you know, like, he's like, you know, it's really good that you came here, you know, and it was the right thing to do. And he says that because he knows that that is something that his is probably worried about, right? Worried right about, like, did he do something awful to Arthur, right? And Arthur is saying it's like, no, because this is something that Nora needed. So anything Nora needed is not an awful thing for me friend you know and I think the part of it is like they are union I feel like that because who are they to each other they're not friends right uh but it's like not even like they're not really like you can't really say that they're rivals that's not how they're treating each other so there's no they're you know kind of an acquaintance but a little bit deeper than that because they both care for this woman together and they know this woman differently and also that's the thing I mean like they don't know each other um uh they, they don't know each other at all and they only know the side of Nora that the other guy doesn't know, right? So I mean that's why the song for it is a John Cale's, you know, more than I you know, more than I know, right? There's something about it where it's like when that song came, um, I was just like, this is the perfect song for them because it's like that's what it is. The part of it is a mystery that they have for each other, and they're actually making room for that mystery for each other and in each other. And I think there's like it's completely uh, magical, what they're sharing in that moment because they're like, for some reason, we ended up here and now you and I are talking uh, in our half language together. And we're going to talk about Inyan because that's who we are. You know, we are Inyan to each other, and how amazing that this woman that we both love in some way, um, in a deep way, is uh, able to connect us. And now we're Inyan this way. So I think that's, that's really what I think is at the heart of that scene and you know like uh Greta Lee or the actress who plays Nora she was in the uh video village while this scene was being shot and she was like this is the hottest thing I've ever seen And I was like I was like exactly because what it is is like you're getting to see like because to me that's what the uh what is interesting to me about masculinity which is um uh the strength to set themselves aside you know um, and to care for another person, to tell the other person, like, you know, like, it's okay. I'm okay. And you're okay. And we're good. You know? So, yeah, I think that's what that scene is.
0: Yeah, it's the most romantic lighting in the film. It's phenomenal. <laughs>
1: uh, it's It's very beautiful lighting.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Celine, for, for such thoughtful and interesting answers. The last question I have for you is I'm curious, you know, always with with first-time filmmakers, is there anything... Either technical or process-wise, or you know, even creative. That now that you have made this movie, you would be excited to try on a future project.
1: I think that, uh, oh, man. I think that like I want to try, I want to try everything, man. Like I think that it's like it's too hard to imagine there's like a one kind of a thing that I want to try. But I think that now I'm feeling really voracious and I want to try everything new. But I think, I honestly think that the thing that I'm carrying through to my second movie is very much that I am uh, like so much more comfortable with the chaos of the thing, you know? Because I think that um, the part of filmmaking that is like trying to find order in the chaos of a film set or like of a day or of the footage or whatever, like I think every day you're trying to find order in it. and I think um it, when the part of it that was the hardest was to uh because it was the first movie is to always feel like is this chaos uh a uh, failure is a is this chaos a failure that like i have wrought because i'm inexperienced but you know over time what you realize is like absolutely not chaos is like a part of making a movie so now i think that i'm going to have a little bit more uh uh, certainty or like a little bit uh, stronger sense of um, just, a, just, just a confidence about the fact that there is chaos, but we are under control, you know, <laughs> like so that I'm a, so I don't feel like it's something that I fucked up, but it's going to feel a little bit more like, no, this is actually something that uh, is going to occur and we're always going to find a way. So it's more like um, knowing that there is
0: uh, there's light somewhere that I can chase, you know, Controlled chaos. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Celine, thank you so much again for, for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. to such a great conversation. Thank you.